Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, Strife in Marriage. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Let's start with the book of James, chapter 3. And what I'd like to minister on this evening, it could be very, very, very important to every one of you. Uh, everything that's been said has been overlapping. You notice I've been referring to what Rich and Tina have said, and they referred to what I've said, and we've been hitting all around all of these different subjects. This is something that has already been said, but it needs to be explained. Most of us don't really understand why there's the response within us to circumstances the way that we should. One thing that Tina was saying, boy, that just really hit home, I was trying to say this today, but I don't think I said it as good as she did. I'm not sure I can repeat it again. But anyway, uh, it was along the lines of regardless of what your mate chooses at this marriage seminar, you don't have to go home and be the same. Your marriage doesn't have to be the same because your marriage is not dependent on what your mate does. It's dependent on what you do. Circumstances do not dictate to you your response. You can choose your response. You can choose whether you want to walk in victory and whether you want to leave this place with a renewed marriage. And I mean, the things we're talking about are inner qualities and personality, personality things that won't only affect your marriage. It'll affect your relationship with, uh, your, with the Lord, with other people, with every area of your life. You can choose to leave here a changed person if you'll take hold of some of these things we're talking about. Now, what I'd like to share on today is just some practical things about what is it in me that causes this reaction of strife? Why is it that I operate this way instead of operating in God's kind of love? Why is it that it seems to be easier to operate in strife and in the carnal things than it is to operate in the things of God? I'd like to preface this, and I could teach on this for a long period of time, but I'll just say this very quickly. I'd like to say I've got some tapes entitled Spirit, Soul, and Body, parts one and two, that will explain this and much other tapes that will go into it. But when you got born again, you don't any longer have anything within you that compels you or makes you sin. It's like we've been saying. It's a choice that you have, and most of us have been making the wrong choice. When you got born again, that old nature, that old sin man was taken out of you, and now the only reason that we are the way we are is because of an unrenewed mind, the fact that we haven't changed our thinking. And I liken this to like a computer. Computers are neither good or bad. All they are is a piece of machinery, and that computer isn't any smarter than the person that programs it. That computer can't do anything on its own. Like my mother, we have a computer in our office building, and she lives in it. It used to be a, a hotel. And she's got four of the rooms that she's converted into her own living quarters, and she lives up there, and this computer is in that building, and uh, she likes to keep the door locked and stay out of there. She won't go in the same room. My mother just has this old-fashioned idea that computers are inherently evil that there's something demonic about computers. But you know, a computer is not either good or bad. It can't do anything above or beyond what it's programmed to do. But a computer will continue to function exactly the way it's programmed until you reprogram it. And it's the same thing with our mind. Our thinking, our decision-making ability is neither good or bad, but it, we will function exactly the way we've been programmed to function. Now, the reason I say this is because when you got born again, that part of you that compels you to sin is no longer within you. There is no longer any demonic part, lost part of you, that compels you to sin. Why then does it seem like we're so prone to sin? Why does it seem like if we're given an option, half of the time or more, we'll choose the wrong, like Tina was reading about in Romans chapter 7, rather than the right? It's because of an unrenewed mind. We were all programmed by the devil how to be self-centered, how to operate in selfishness. We've been programmed how to do things until it just becomes like a first nature unto us. And until we reprogram ourselves by the Word of God, we will continue to function the way that we were trained to function. Now you can see this in the area of child training, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'll get to child training or if Jamie will minister on it during this session or not. We really need to because that's a vital part of marriage, but I, we've got three tapes back there on the subject of child training that you could take, and I promise you, your children can be nothing but a blessing to you. They do not have to be a terror. The Bible says that they're a blessing. It's a blessing of the Lord. Man, if you want to get blessed, have children. Not everybody has that kind of attitude, but that's what it can be through the Lord. But anyway, in the area of children, I see sometimes people that say, why are my children like this? Why are they doing these kind of things? And they get upset like those children just on their own chose to be this way. Your children are exactly 
what you have made them to be or what you've allowed them to be. And there are no exceptions to that. And that may be tight, and some people may think, Brother, I just don't like that. You're saying that I'm responsible? That's exactly what I'm saying. Your child will be exactly what you make them to be or what you allow them to be. Now, you may not consciously be allowing it. You may not understand, but not taking the authority and taking the spiritual authority over them and praying over them and disciplining them correctly, you can train your children to do something wrong, and it's actually you that did it. Now, an example of what I'm... Let me give a quick example before we get into James 3. But an example of what I'm talking about is that many times in an effort to train your children, we use this negative motivation that I was talking about before where we instill fear in them rather than love. There is a period of time where you use fear, a fear of the rod, as a motivation, but that's only a temporary measure the way Galatians chapter 3 talks about. As soon as we can become sons, we are supposed to have a higher form of motivation than that. And you have to, from the day one, begin to start weaning your children away from doing things just out of fear and instill the proper values in them and make sure they're doing things out of love for God. But anyway, when, when a child is young, and say, for instance, you're wanting a child to quit sucking his thumb, I've seen this happen so many times that people will try and tell them no, they'll discipline them. If the child continues on because it's become a habit, because they've been trained to do it. Uh, parents, you, you know, you, if you don't want your children to suck your thumb, you don't have to ever let that happen. Our kids, it, it's, let me say, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with sucking your thumb. But we just chose that we weren't going to go through that problem with our kids. And did you know, we never started them sucking their thumbs, and our kid never sucked their thumbs ever one. And they neither one of them uh, emotionally disturbed, upset, or anything else, all right? <laughs> you don't have to have a child sucking his thumb. Lots of that we start it because it's easier on us than dealing with them just to hand them a pacifier or something else and we instill these things in them with many times. So anyway, a child that's sucking his thumb and all of a sudden you want to break them off it. You tell them no, you spank them and they got this ingrained habit in them. I've seen parents many times refer to things like saying, well, you're nearly old enough to start into school. What are your friends going to say when you start school and you're sucking your thumb? They're going to call you a sissy. Nobody likes a sissy. You don't want to be a sissy, do you? Don't you want to be like everybody else? Does your friends, do they suck their thumbs? Probably every last one of you have used that kind of uh, rationale sometime or another correcting children, whether it's on that or if it's potty training them or if it's talking about them just being obnoxious. Sometimes, you know, kids talk don't know when to shut up. If you ever said nobody likes to be around a smart aleck, nobody likes to be around somebody just all they do is talk all the time, you're obnoxious. Have you ever done things like that? You know what you're doing? Without understanding it, you may have got compliance in a certain situation, but underneath that, you use peer pressure to motivate your children. You told them the most important thing is being like everybody else. Don't you want to be like everybody else? If you aren't like everybody else, you're going to be weird. Nobody will be like, want to be like you. Did you know that that's how come a little child is uninhibited? They'll dance before the Lord. They'll shout. They'll lift their hands. They'll praise God. And most of us had to go through a traumatic experience to be able to do it. You know why? Because we had it instilled in us somewhere down the line. What are people going to think about you? And it may have got compliance, but the overall effect of it was negative. We trained, we were trained negatively by negative motivation. I was at a Christian school in Kansas City that has over 500 children in that school. It's become the largest school now. It has nearly a thousand now. It's the largest Christian school in the whole state of Kansas. And this school principal was up introducing me and talking about praise God for Christian education, which I agree, man. I, I'm 100% for it. That's not what we're ministering on, okay? But he was, I'm for Christian education, and he was saying, praise God for positive peer pressure. He, and he showed me a brochure, and on their brochure, they listed the benefits of Christian education, and one of them was positive peer pressure. In other words, everybody at that school wants to do what's right, and so you take a bad kid and put him in there because of peer pressure, he'll start doing what's right because he wants to be accepted. Looks good, doesn't it? But did you know that you're still teaching people to be motivated by public opinion? And what Tina's talking about, they didn't have an identity of their own. They didn't have a value system. They did whatever the majority was doing. As long as they're in a good majority, fine. But you take those same kids, you use that public, I mean that Christian school to in to enforce positive peer pressure and the moment they get drafted or nowadays they don't get drafted to go into the service or whatever and they get in a negative peer pressure situation you'll find that same training leads those kids into drugs into sexual experiences outside of marriage and etc 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 and many times Christians are the ones that have drilled that in their kids and we can't understand why are our children the way they are they're exactly the way we train them to be they're exactly like 
The girl comes home and she's pregnant and the Christian parent says, why would you do something like this? We've taught you better. And the girl will say, but everybody does it. What would, people, what would people think of me if I wasn't like them? I want to be accepted in the Christian parent. Why do you care so much about what other people think? Because since they were one year old, you've been drilling it in them. Don't you want to be like everybody else? Or you want to be an oddball? Don't you want to be accepted? Now that's what I'm saying. We have been trained wrong. You may not even recognize that, but we are enforcing negative things in our children because that's the way we were trained. And like Rick and Peter saying, we're passing the same thing right on. We're instilling the same things in our children. So the reason we respond the way we do is not because we have to. When you got born again, you were liberated. Jesus sets you free. And praise God, you do not have to be anything other than what Jesus wants you to be. There is not a devil in hell that can make you be anything other than victorious. There is no devil that can make your marriage be anything less than what God wants it to be. If your marriage is not what God wants it to be, you cannot push it off on circumstances and things. It is a choice, a bad choice, that's been made by us. It's the way we've been trained. And we're sharing the good news with you that, praise God, you can change that choice. You can choose to be exactly what God wants you to be. You can choose to love when everything within you says hate, retaliate. You can operate in love. You can choose to do that. You, the buck stops here, and you can't blame it on somebody else. Amen? All right. So what is it that makes us do that? It's this wrong training. Just like a computer. We've been programmed wrong and we're continuing to operate wrong because we haven't taken the time to get into God's Word and find out the truths that will reprogram us and make us different. Amen? You know, just like when you button a shirt. You put that shirt on and you don't even think about buttoning your shirt or blouse anymore because it's something that you learned how to do. When you first learned it, it was hard. You probably got them out of sequence. They were all crooked and everything like that. But now you can button your shirt or your blouse and not even think about it because it's just become nearly a reaction. You are programmed. That's something that you can just operate in automatically. Did you know God never made any of you to operate in a temper? That is not your personality. That is an acquired part of your personality. Or it's either something demonic that was given to you. One of the two. Either way, you can get set free of it. God did not make you that way. It's because of a series of wrong training and wrong choices that you're, way that, that you're the way you are. And we're going to take the Word of God today and show you some things that will renew your mind and help you to choose against that and choose to walk in love. All right? Here in James chapter 3, in verse 13, it says, "...who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom." But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This is what we've been saying through this seminar. It doesn't matter what you've learned. It doesn't matter what show of wisdom that you have. It doesn't matter your position in the church. It doesn't matter your ministry that you have, how many people you lead to the Lord. It doesn't matter anything. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, if your home is not reflecting the life of God, don't glory and lie against the truth. Don't sit there and say that, man, the anointing of God is resting on your life because I promise you, your home is a more accurate representation of what your spiritual condition is than your ministry, than your relationship with other people, than anything else. Amen. So don't glory and lie against the truth. If you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. And sensual... Many times we apply that to gross sexual misconduct and all of these kind of things, and that does apply, but the word sensual literally means of the five senses. He says that if you have bitter envy and strife in your heart, your emotion ruled. Exactly what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about that uh, love is a decision, not an emotion. So you're sensual and devilish. Satan operates through the senses. In verse... 16, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Now that scripture right there is a strong scripture. Where envying and strife is, there is confusion. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that God is not the author of confusion but of peace. So Satan is the author of confusion. This is talking about when you're operating in envying and strife, you're operating in Satan's kingdom. There is envying and strife, confusion, and every evil work. Now what are evil works? Sickness is an evil work. Poverty is an evil work. Depression is an evil work. Loneliness. On and on you could go. All, anything negative, anything that's not part of the abundant life that the Lord Jesus Christ promised us is an evil work and it's, a, it's from Satan. The Bible says that every 
evil work is present where envying and strife is. Now, I can't think of any other scripture in the Word of God that says something that's that inclusive. Did you know giving is important? But if you don't give, it doesn't open up a door to every evil work. It may hinder you in the financial realm or something like that, but it doesn't open up a door to every evil work. Did you know going out and ministering to people is important? And if you don't do that, it may hinder you. And on and on you can go with a list of things. If you don't pray, prayer is important. Man, how many of us are turned on to intercession? Man, we intercede and intercede and intercede and yet operate in strife and, and sit there and are stressing the importance of prayer and letting strife run rampant in our homes. There's some people that are into ministry. Man, we've got to go out and reach the world. It's too late. The time's too short. We've got to reach the world. They're into reaching the world and they don't understand that operating in strife is a thousand times more deadly, more detrimental than not going out and reaching the world. The Bible says where Indian and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. I talked to some people. There was an example of a, a group in... Um, well, I won't give the name of the town, but I had just gone to this church. It was a brand new word type of church, and they were preaching faith, and the people were still new in it. There was an excitement, but there were still also questions about it. They had an instance where there was a boy that got shot in the head, and... Um, he went into a coma. The church began to stand in agreement and pray. And I mean, he was supposed to have been dead within seconds. He got to the hospital, was still alive, and they put him on one of these respirators. They took the respirator off, and he still lived for over a month, and it just looked like he was coming out of it. Everything was fine. Two days before I got there, they had the boy's funeral. He just lapsed and died. And the church was in turmoil about, man, what happened? I thought we were standing in faith and believing God for this healing. And why didn't God heal him? And the whole church was in turmoil over it. And so I came into that situation. So I had two or three lunches with the parents of this child, trying to talk to them and minister to them. And basically what I was sharing was, look, I don't know exactly where the problem is, but I can promise you this, it was God's will to heal him. And if it didn't work, it wasn't the fact that God didn't heal him. It, there's, there's a good reason for it somewhere. I didn't know where it was, but I just kept talking to him. Finally, after talking to him all week, did you know that they had so much strife in that home that they had talked about getting a divorce. The man and wife had already decided that they were going to get a divorce. They hadn't done anything about it, but they had talked about it and were headed in that direction. The morning that this boy got shot, the mother had an argument with the son and said, just get out of my house and don't come home. The boy was experiencing so much rejection, he broke the rules of school. He was not supposed to leave the school grounds, went home with a friend, and they were playing around, and this friend was a very ungodly boy, and he was... Uh, he was over there smarting off and he loaded a gun and put it to this guy's head and shot him. And then they wondered why they didn't see manifestation of these things. It was bathed in strife and hatred. And the Bible says where envy and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. We need to wake up and recognize that, look, we can't come to church and try and grow in the area of faith and healing and prosperity, etc. and let our marriages go to pot and wonder why we aren't seeing more happen. There's a lot of us that we've got more faith than it takes to get healed, but we aren't healed, not because we don't believe in healing and because we don't know how to confess the Word. It's because of the levels of strife and hatred in our heart. I've seen people at our services before. I saw a woman one time that had her hands up just worshiping God and praising God, and her little kid was pulling on her coattail, saying, Mama, Mama, and this lady, Shut up! I'm praising God! Boy, just go back, Oh, thank you, Father. And then they wonder why they aren't penetrating. Why is it that it doesn't seem like I'm able to communicate and get through? You don't treat a dog that way. You know, the Bible talks about that an evil man is cruel to his beast. You know, the way you treat your animals reflects your relationship with God. You don't treat a dog that way, much less a child or your wife or something else. There are some of you that talk to your family, talk to your mates, talk to your children in tones of voice that if you were to say something like that to me, I guarantee you, you would be embarrassed over it. We need to wise up to what strife is. Strife is not only when you lose your temper and get mad and punch somebody in the nose. Rich and Tina are a good example of what she was sharing this afternoon. Rich was a time they would lose his temper, but I, I'm like Tina. I'm the kind, I can't tell you the last time I got mad. I don't think my family has ever seen me mad. High school is probably the last time I ever got mad enough and lost my temper. I got in a fight one time and a guy nearly killed me before I got mad enough to fight back. I mean, literally, he had me down on the ground, and it finally was fight or die, one of the two, and that's the only thing that motivated me. I'm just an easygoing guy. I don't get mad, and I don't lose my temper, but boy, do I sulk. Boy, can I get into self-pity, and I guarantee you that is strife, that is anger. I can, I can do a world of damage without ever saying a word. Any of you ever seen that in your mate? Did you know that that's strife? 
You need to recognize that strife comes in many different forms, many different packages, but the end result of it is that it gives place to every evil work. I had a friend of mine that in a vision saw this vision. I'll give this real quick, but he was in an old barn. You could see through the slats in the barn. And in the barn was this pure white sheet on a bed. I mean, it was just... Uh, perfectly clean. This bed was sitting right in the middle of the barn, nothing else around. And he was sitting on the bed. And he woke up in this barn and was looking around and he saw three snakes coming to him. And these three snakes were a cobra, a rattlesnake, and a copperhead. And they were just coming in unison like this, their heads like this, just across the barn, right up to him. And so he got off the bed and ran into this shed that was beside the barn and found this old uh, hole there. And he came back, jumped on the bed, and these snakes were right up there, and he swung that hole and hit one, and it just bounced off of them like rubber. And uh, he couldn't, that hole was so dull, it wouldn't chop their heads or do anything. So he ran back in the shed and found one of these old grinders that you pump it with your foot, you know, and it's a wheel that turns. And he was in there sharpening this hole just as fast as he could so he could go back in there and find those snakes. And while he did it, this drunk woman came in. And just fell all over him, and she's drunk, and she was drunk on the spirit, talking about this great miracle, the move of God going on down the street, and uh, saying, "You've got to come to this revival, man. The power of God's in manifestation." And Joe was saying, "No, no, I've got to get this hole sharp. I've got to go in there and kill those snakes." Anyway, the interpretation of it later on, as it went on, was that many people are caught up in going and seeing all of the great things of God and experiencing the excitement and stuff, but very few people are dealing with these root causes, these snakes that are in people's lives. We're caught up into all of the exterior. And man, he couldn't do it. He had to get back in there. After he sharpened that hole, he came back in. Boy, and just cut their heads off with one whack. And instantly, the Lord showed him the names of those snakes. And the first one was strife. Anyway, this illustrates a point that I'm talking about. Strife opens up a door to every evil work. Strife is just like having like a king cobra in your house. I guarantee you, the evil works that strife opens up a door to are a thousand times worse than having a king cobra living in your house. Now, there's some of you women that I guarantee you, you would not tolerate a snake in your house for one second. You wouldn't live that way. I mean, you would put your foot down and say, this is it. I don't care what you say. I don't care what the situation is. I, me and this snake aren't staying in this house together. One of the two is leaving. You wouldn't tolerate that. And yet, we will tolerate strife in our family and think that it's normal, that it's natural. You'll allow your children to argue back and forth and just tolerate levels of strife and not even correct the thing, thinking, well, they're just kids. It's not normal for kids to be at each other's throats. It may be typical, but that is not the way God intended it to be. And if you allow that strife in your home, did you know that the rebellion we see in the teenage years was there in the one- and two-year-old children? It simply wasn't as violent. It didn't manifest itself the same. And all they're doing is expressing something that you have condoned and approved of and permitted for 10, 13 years, whatever. Strife is deadly in any form. Husbands and wives will allow each other to go days without talking with each other, praying with each other, or doing anything else, just thinking, well, we've got a problem between us, and they'll tolerate that. You wouldn't tolerate a snake for one second. I want you to know that strife is deadlier than any snake that you've ever been exposed to. It will destroy, it will open up a door to every evil work. And you may be given all you've got. You're going to be robbed and you're going to become poor if you don't deal with strife in that marriage. You may know everything about healing that there is, but I promise you, you're going to see Satan rip you off in the area of healing if you don't get, deal with strife in your marriage. Strife is a luxury that nobody, nobody, nobody can afford. You, there is nobody strong enough to handle strife. And many of us have just thought, well, I was born this way. This is just the way that I am. No, it's not. Many, I tell you, men especially use this as a cop-out as well. I'm just not the emotional kind. I don't show my emotions. That was acquired. God didn't make men be slobs and not operate in love towards their wife and things like that. You can get rid of that trait. You need to be expressing love. You heard the testimony of Tina about how that not showing your love and manifesting it hurt her and it damages people. God didn't make you to be a tough, macho type that just can't show your feelings. You made yourself to be that way or somebody else made you to be that way, but you can choose to be different. It is not weakness to show love. Matter of fact, I believe it's really weakness and it's a terrible bondage to be in a stereotype so that you can't be yourself and if you really feel compassion, you can't release it. Now that's bondage. It's not bondage to show emotion. Amen? So strife is a terrible, 
terrible thing and you need to get to the place that you don't tolerate it. Let's look over here in Proverbs chapter 13 and what I'd like to do is to deal with and show you what is the root cause of strife. Why is it that we operate in strife? And boy, I'm glad that this is in the Bible. Because if I was to say this, I'd be in a world of hurt. People would disagree with me and say, Brother, I don't agree. You're just a little off base. But here the Word of God says it. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Well, now that's simple. Only by pride comes contention. Now, contention, if you were to look contention up in the dictionary, it'll define the word contention by strife. If you look the word strife up, it'll define it by contention. Contention is simply a mild form of strife. Strife comes in different manifestations, the violent manifestations, the sulking, depressed type manifestations, etc. Contention is a beginning of strife. Matter of fact, there's a scripture a couple of chapters on that says, leave off with contention lest it be meddled with and become strife. And so contention is the beginning of strife. So strife, contention, comes only through pride. Now the scripture says that's the only way it comes. It didn't say that it's a contributing factor or it's one of the things or this is a big cause, it's number one cause or anything else. The scripture says only by pride comes contention. So the only reason for anger in your life, the only reason for hurt feelings, harsh words in a marriage is pride. Not circumstances, not things that have been done, but rather it's pride. Now, this pride needs to be explained. Tina said these things, but it needs to be explained because some people may not catch it just the way that it said. But she, she said it straight out that pride, she was one of the most prideful people that ever was, and yet she had a terrible self-esteem, a low self-image, and yet she was operating in pride. Pride is not only thinking you're better than somebody else. Now, that is pride. But pride in its simplest terms is simply self-centeredness or self-sufficiency. Did you know the most proud people I think the hardest pride to deal with is the person that is self-sufficient, doesn't realize a dependency upon God. They have so much natural talent and ability that they can get it done on their own. Those are very, very proud people. They are independent. It's hard for them to submit to God because they can do it on their own. Some of you confess to being workaholics. Did you know workaholics are, are proud people? Amen or oh me? And you know why? Because instead of doing and establishing these priorities the way God said, they know if you admitted you're a workaholic, that means sometime or another you realize that you just give probably ten hours to something that only takes eight, but you just are into doing it your best. So you've been convicted about it at some time or another. But the reason they do that is because they can't entrust it to somebody else. They believe that they can do it. They just put themselves totally into it. They know God's system of priorities, and yet they aren't abiding by it. They aren't willing to submit themselves. Trust God to take care of it. You know, with a pastor, this is real easy to see because a pastor has such a noble ministry. People are being helped. I mean, there's people's lives that are in the balance. If I take a day off from the ministry, what happened? They're, you know, I minister to millions of people on the radio every day. And what happens if I take a day off? And I don't minister to people. It's possible people could go to hell. Lives, you know, terrible things could happen. So it's very easy to rationalize and say, man, I've got to give myself 100% totally to this. And yet God establishes that the number one priority is my relationship with Him. Number two is my family. And the ministry is down the list someplace. Did you know it's actually a statement of pride? It's actually a, a statement of lack of faith in God to say that, God, I can't take time off. I can't do it the way you've shown me I should because these people have got to be ministered to and nobody can do it but me. God, I'm indispensable. God, I've got to do these things. You know, I've seen this in the ministry. That Boy, I, I started off and Jamie and I were the ministry. I did everything. I was like a one-armed paper hanger. Man, I did everything. <laughs> and did you know it was hard for me to start delegating things to other people and trust somebody else and yet Dale, our general manager back here, can tell you probably if I have a problem now it's the fact that I'm willing to give everything to him and not have any control in it. I mean, I've come a long ways. I've changed to a large degree. And the Lord showed me that, you know, it was lack of faith that I couldn't delegate something to somebody else and act the way that God wanted me to. I was too self-dependent. I wasn't trusting and relying upon God. Did you know that's pride? Amen? 
You know, failure to submit yourself, humble yourself before God is pride. So pride comes in a lot of different forms. I was dealing with a woman just recently that her reputation was going to be slandered. She has always been just, I mean, she has uh, upheld her integrity to the nth degree. And uh, some people were slandering her, saying things against her. And she was saying, I've got to retaliate. I've got to do something. I've got to let the people know that this is not the way I really acted. They're, they're going to slander our reputation. What will happen to the ministry of the Lord? And so I shared with her scriptures from Romans chapter 12 about avenge not yourselves, but give place unto wrath. For God has said, vengeance belongeth unto me, I will repay. And I say, look, God will take care of it. And she was saying, I see that, but what do I do with this feeling? I just can't get over it. You know, what am I going to do? They're misrepresenting me. And she says, they're going to think I've operated in pride. They're telling people that it's just my greed, my promotion, wanting to promote self that's the problem. says, that stuff's not true. And finally, you know, I turned it around and I said, you're really proud of your humility, aren't you? Well, you're really proud of this reputation that you're humble and you don't want anybody to misunderstand exactly how humble you are. And you know, that really exposed it to her. She was sitting there trying to defend her humility and did you know that that was pride? Pride can come in a lot of different forms. In its simplest terms, pride is simply self-centeredness or self-will. Now, if you use that as a definition of pride, which we could define that if I had time. I hadn't got time to go through all of this. But if you'll just accept that as a definition of pride and begin to apply that into your life, then you can see exactly why we respond the way we do and why we lash out in anger. It's simply because of self-centeredness. It's because we aren't putting first the other person, but rather all we're doing is thinking about ourselves. Again, I can go back to the relate to uh, when we're children. When you come into this world, you are totally self-centered. A, a one-week-old baby doesn't care about the fact that the mama just had a baby and you know may still be recovering, and the fact that she's been up at all night long every night for the last week. That baby doesn't care about anybody but itself. When it wants something to eat, it wants it right then. When it wants to be changed, that baby wants to be changed right then. That baby is totally self-centered. And you know, for a one-week-old baby, that's understandable. But what's really bad is when they're 40 and 50 and 60 years old. See, they come into the world totally self-centered. And did you know that it's a responsibility of a parent to get that child out of themselves and to start teaching that child that, look, you are not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around you. And there are other people in this world besides you. And don't just think about what you want. Don't go over there and just take toys from other people. You need to learn to share. And you need to realize that your real purpose in being here is so that you can be a blessing. As it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, so that you can be a pleasure unto God and unto other people. And you start instilling within that child that you are here to be a blessing to other people. The way to be exalted is to be a servant. As Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be a servant of all. We're here to teach our children that, and yet most of us, because we're caught up in our own problems, on marital problems, job problems, etc., we aren't diligent with our children, and we are allowing this self-centeredness to stay intact within them and never break that self-will. You know, I had an instance uh, just a week and a half ago, I was talking to Dave about this, and I had a horse given to me that is totally, totally wild. This horse, they've had professional cowboys out four weeks in a row trying to catch this horse. And they roped it. They drugged these guys across the pasture. One of them nearly died from it. He broke off fence posts. They've done everything. This horse is just as wild as a March hare. And uh, it had a halter that they put on when it was one year old. And the horse is now a little over three years old. And this halter had grown and it pinched its nose. And it was angry because I wouldn't let anybody touch its head. And so the horse was really in a mess. They gave this horse to me. Nobody could catch this horse. And uh, yet it's, it's got the potential of being a great horse. It really does. It's three-quarters um, quarter horse and one-fourth heir. And so anyway, they gave this horse to me. Nobody could catch it. And all the people I contacted about breaking it and training it said that I had to bring it to them. This horse, nobody can even catch it, much less trailer the thing. So I was praying about it about three weeks ago, and the Lord showed me how to catch that horse. I went out and in two minutes had caught that horse. And it was a miracle. And anyway, I'm not sure that I did it the right way. But uh, when I caught that horse, it scared that horse. It went irate. And for about 20 or 25 minutes, that horse, uh, it took off running. That rope caught around its neck, knocked it over backward. It rolled on the ground. It spit. It had blood coming out its mouth and nose. It acted like it's dying. Scared me. 
I went over and tried to let it loose, but it was pulling so tight on the rope, I couldn't get the rope loose. And that horse fought for about 20, 25 minutes and finally just collapsed. And I, I wasn't sure it hadn't died. I mean, its eyes were so red. Its blood pressure was so high that its eyes were blood red all around. And I mean, that horse looked like it was gone. It laid down for over an hour. And during that time, we took the halter off. We tied it between two poles, did some things. And did you know when that horse got up, that was not the same horse. The name of that horse is El Shaddai. And I tell you, that horse is more than enough. And when that horse got up, did you know it stood in the exact position, didn't even shift its weight from foot to foot for over 24 hours. I mean, it was broken. And we're in, within one week's time, I had a saddle on that horse. I've had my kids on it. Uh, uh, eight-year-old kids leading them around by a halter. And that horse is, you know, it's just in the process of being trained. It's already broken, but it needs to be trained now. That horse was so independent, it wouldn't submit. But after it learned that, man, I got the best of it, you know, that horse can be standing there with its head up and it can see me coming. Boy, it'll put its head down as a sign of submission. <laughs> that horse is submit. That horse has learned that it is no longer independent. And did you know now, uh, yesterday or whenever I was out there last, that horse started to run off from me as I was leading it with a uh, lead rope and all I did was jerk on that rope just a little bit. And boy, that horse just froze and walked right over to me. It didn't know that it could have drugged me all over the pasture just like that other guy. But see, it, it had learned that it was no longer independent. It had learned to submit. Now, that's not a perfect example. You don't treat your kids like that, all right? You don't. But what I am saying, your children do need to learn that they are not independent and that they can't do their own thing. They've got to learn that they were created by a creator and that they're responsible to him and that they cannot do their own thing. The Bible says the same thing for a Christian, that you are not your own, you're bought with a price. We've got to learn to come under the yoke. The Bible says in the book of Psalms 119 that it's good that a man bear, his, bear the yoke in his youth. It's good that you learn how to serve in your youth. And most of us are not teaching our children submission. We aren't teaching them respect of authority. We're letting them be self-willed. They want a piece of candy and they fall down and parents say, no, you can't have a piece of candy. You've already had one. And so the kid falls down in the middle of the supermarket floor begins to scream and holler, kick, spit. I want my candy. You know what most parents will do? Because of self-centeredness, because they're more concerned about what are people going to think about me? Look what this kid's doing. They'll let that kid have the candy. Why? Because they're still a kid themselves. Rather than be more concerned about their children and rather than take the abuse and let somebody think what they want to about them, they'll reward that child for negative behavior because of nothing but total self-centeredness and they reinforce in this child, man, if you want something, all you got to do is kick and holler and scream loud enough and you can get your way. You can get whatever you want. You can manipulate mommy and daddy. Did you know that there's a lot of six-month, one-year-old children that have their parents... It's where they can't sleep all night because these kids want to wake up in the middle of the night and do this and that. We taught our children that, man, you're going to go to bed and sleep like a person. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about when they were one week old. When they've got to be fed every four hours, that's different. But when a kid just gets in the habit because you've trained them of getting up during the night, we told, told them, no, you don't do it. And did you know you can tra train a child to do that? And there's nothing repressive with that. There's nothing that's bad about that. We just taught our children to behave. We taught our children to take a nap every day because it's good when they were young to be still. And when they got to the place that they didn't need a nap, they still had to be still and just pray or read the Bible or read one of their storybooks. We taught them to be still and know that He's God. Did you know that's a blessing on the parents? Man, mother has an hour or two hours, you know, that's just like a sanctuary. She can sit down and study the Word and pray and do things like that. We taught our children to submit. But you know, most of us haven't been taught to submit. Most of us have grown up with this self-will totally intact, with pride intact. And you know the conflict that's happening in marriage is nothing but adult temper tantrums, adult fits. Your mate didn't do what you want, so therefore, man, you're going to let them have it. You're going to react. You're going to do something because you were treated wrong. Total selfishness is the root cause of all strife. If you've got strife, you've got self-centeredness. And it doesn't matter what the other person does, if you are void of that self-centeredness, it's exactly like what Tina was saying. When Tina said, God, do something with me. God, don't worry about Rich. What about me? And she got her act together. She said she reached a place where it didn't matter what Rich did. 
Because the thing inside of her that made her respond in that hatred was gone. That self-centeredness. She had humbled herself. She was broken before the Lord, broken in a contract spirit. She had humbled herself. That self-will had been dealt with and therefore all of the anger was gone. Your anger is not something that you were just born with. It's not something that's a part of your personality trait. It's a part of self-centeredness. It's nothing but selfishness and the fact that you're exalting yourself above anybody else. And that's what's causing that anger. You know, I saw a thing on television one time where they took a man who was on death row and they were doing a thing on capital punishment. And they showed this man, and I am not against capital punishment. I'm real mercy-oriented, but I do believe that there is such a thing as a deterrent to other people. So I am not against capital punishment. I'm not a real pro-support. I don't like to see anybody uh, murdered, whether it's in the name of justice or whatever, but I do believe that sometimes it's superior to the alternative. All right? So I'm, not, I'm saying that to qualify where I'm coming from. I am not against capital punishment. But they took this man on death row, and they gave a life history of him and showed pictures when he was a little kid and a, a baby. You know, no baby. <laughs> No baby, you know, is worth capital punishment. You don't want to put a baby, you don't want to kill a baby for something that they did. So they took pictures when he was a baby, and boy, you got to looking at him thinking how cute he was. And then they showed him when he was a little kid on his stick horse, riding around with his guns on his hip, uh, playing all of these games. And they showed him growing up, and then they showed how he was abused, how he went through a divorce, how he was rejected, how he had been uh, sexually molested when he was a child, and all of the terrible things that had happened to him. And then they showed him in jail waiting to be executed. And did you know you couldn't help but feel pity and sympathy for that guy? Even though I did not approve of what he did, and even though I still would have not have done away with the death penalty, I still felt sympathy for that guy when you saw his side of the story, when you saw where he came from. But you could have taken that same audience that now was all supportive of him and really wishing that there was some way to get him off the hook. You could take those same group of people and you could take the girl that he raped and murdered and you could show her baby pictures and show her growing up and how sweet she was and show all of the ideas and the ambitions that her parents had for her and all of her plans. Show her fiancé that she was fixing to get married to and then show some pervert coming in there and raping her and murdering her for his own selfish gratification. And that same group of people looking at a different side of the story would be ready to string that guy up. Man, they'd form a vigilante committee. You see what I'm saying? Your emotions can be affected directly on the information that you're fed. If you're only looking at things from your perspective, your inevitable result is going to be strife. If you are self-centered, only by pride comes contention. If you are self-centered, looking at your side of the issue, it's inevitable that strife is going to be the byproduct. But if you could get through love to where you think on the other person and think where they're coming from and think about them more than you do about yourself, then it's impossible to respond in anger. You can see this in the Word of God. Moses, man, he knew the blessing of God was upon him. And when people came out against him, instead of Moses taking offense and instead of him getting his feelings hurt and striking back and saying something, Moses would fall on his face and begin to pray and intercede because he knew that, man, God was fixing to avenge him and defend him and he would start interceding for those other people. No hatred, no bitterness in his heart whatsoever. Love and compassion stood as an intercessor for the very people that were wanting to kill him. Why? Because the Bible says in, Roman, in uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Moses was not in this for himself. He was not self-centered. Moses was totally humbled before God. His whole life was spent for others, and because of it, Moses was able to fall down and intercede for the very people wanting to kill him. That's the reason that Jesus was able to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. That's the reason that Stephen was able to say, Father, lay not this sin to their charges, because they, they were into God more than they were into themselves. If your mind is more stayed upon God advancing His kingdom and ministering to the other person than you are yourself, you will not even take notice when things come your way. If you were to take those characteristics of love that we dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 earlier this morning, and if you were to read those in different translations, I believe it's the uh, Living Bible or something that says love doesn't even uh, notice, suffer, doesn't take account suffered wrongs. It's not even aware when people are doing things to you because it's not self-centered. For you to be aware of all of the ways your mate has mistreated you and all of the things that they've done, it reveals that there's a very self-centered person on the inside of you. When you're really lo loving them with 
God's kind of love, all you want to do is just spend and be spent for Him. Just like this example of the couple I gave you earlier today that went to the marriage counselor and she came out of there and instead of defending herself, she says, look, whatever it takes to help you is fine, even if that's running me down. How many of us are that dead to ourselves that we would let our mate run us down if that's going to help them? There's not very many people like that, and that's the reason that there's a lot of strife in marriages. Is because very few of us have ever submitted ourselves to such a degree that we'll even let people defame us if that's what it takes. You know, if you're really dead to yourself, if you took a corpse and laid it out in front of me tonight, you could spit on that corpse, you could jump up and down on it, you can do anything. And if they're dead, there's not going to be very much response. And on the other hand, you can compliment them and do all kinds of things. There's not going to be any response to that. If they're dead, they just don't respond to things like that. If you're dead to self, then pride can't grab a hold, contention cannot come, and the result will be that you'll be able to release this God kind of love that's already on the inside of us by simply choosing God over self. Choosing God's ways over our own ways. Anybody see that? Well, that's so simple. Now, that's not easy, but that's very, very simple. It's a simple matter of brothers and sisters choosing. We've established a lot of things. One of them is that God's kind of love is not an emotion. We've shown you the truth. Are you going to choose to walk in God's kind of love and just begin to say, bless God, I will love, even as God for, you know, loved the church and gave Himself for it. Look in the Word of God. Find examples of it. Implement Are you going to choose to do that or are you going to choose to continue to be self-centered and go your own way because that's the way that your family did it. That's the way you were brought up. That's the way all the people you know did it. You've got a choice in front of you. And your mate's not making the choice for you. It's not how bad they're treating you that determines your reaction. You can choose today to operate in God's kind of love. Amen? You can choose to be self-centered. You can choose to grow up today. And boy, so much of what's happening is just immaturity. I mean carnal immaturity. Carnal things. You know, I look at children today sometimes and I think, God, how could they ever be different? Man, they haven't been taught anything. They're growing up there an emotional wreck. And I think, God, how are they going to ever reproduce anything other than what they've been fed? And I honestly don't know an answer to that, barring the intervention of the Lord. I mean, America's in a mess today because of the youth and some of the youth, the way they're headed, and because they have not been checked and because they've been allowed to run free. I guarantee you the next generation is going to be a mess if it wasn't for the believers' kids. We got a group of believers coming up that are stronger than horseradish, amen. And I believe they're going to take the leadership. But you know, many of us are just reproducing things that we were taught. Self-centeredness. Not necessarily instilled in us, but unchecked. Just like that horse. Nobody's ever broken it. Nobody's ever shown them that they, they're the boss, that somebody else is important besides that individual. Some of you are so wrapped up into self that all you can think about is what they did wrong to me. Well, why did they do it? You know, this woman, and I gave you this example of this marriage that was so bad. When the Lord began to deal with her, the real thing that turned it around, she began to start saying, Father, help me to love Him. Why is He the way He is? And God showed her when He was a child how He was treated, how He was abused, the terrible things that happened. And she could tell exactly why He was the way that He was because she saw where He was coming from. She saw His side of the story. She never had considered it before. Have you all ever been around somebody that loses their temper? Or any of you ever like that? And somebody that loses their temper, and I mean is violent and demonstrates it, and I mean, in, uh, you know, physical abuse or whatever. My brother's like that. My brother's just the opposite of me. I mean, he gets violent, whereas I always pout it. When you get around people like that, after they lose their temper, they'll nearly inevitably come back. When they see the damage that they've done, verbally or physically or whatever, they'll come back and they'll say, I'm sorry. If I'd have thought about what I was doing, if I'd have thought about how much I was going to hurt you, I wouldn't have done this. You know what they're saying? They're reinforcing this Proverbs 13.10 that I was so much into pride, I was so self-centered, I didn't think about you, I didn't care about you, where you were coming from. All I could think of was somebody did something to me. I was totally, totally, totally self-centered. Amen or oh me? So anyway, this woman began to start realizing the other person's perspective. She began to see where her husband was coming from. And did you know she gained a love and a compassion for him? 
And she began to pray and she began to start defending him. I mean, it got to the point it was obnoxious to Jamie and me because she'd come over and say, oh, he's such a great man. Oh, he really's got all this potential inside of him. And I'd look at her and think, boy, are we talking about the same guy? I mean, this guy was a rat in the natural. And she just loved him. She Love covered the multitude of sins. All she could see was the good, the the capacity for good that was on the inside of that man. She far surpassed my advice that I was giving her. She was doing what Tina was saying. She took it and acted on it. Instead of, you know, just saying it, she was doing it. And she got such a love for that man. There's times that I would have given up and told her to leave him. But no, she wouldn't hear it, man, because she was into believing God for that man to be changed. That's the way God's kind of love is. It'll automatically look at the other person's side of the story. It'll give people the benefit of the doubt. And brothers and sisters, if we'd start implementing that in our marriage, I guarantee you, you can stop. You can stop dead in its track. I mean, bring to zero the levels of strife in your home. You do not have to permit it. That is not normal or natural. We have taken the world standards for so long and thought, well, this is just the way it has to be. I'm here to tell you that is not the way it has to be. There is something better. I led a man to the Lord once who was so messed up that after he got born again, he came into our church and did nothing but sow discord. I mean, he caused problems everywhere he went. All he did was gripe and complain. And after about five or six months of that, he came to me and he says, I'm leaving this group. He says, I'm still going to serve God. I'm a Christian, but I'm getting out of this church. You're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites and you're hindering me. I'll be better off out in the woods. And so I started talking to him, and, and uh, he says, this, is just, this group is full of strife. That's all they are, just full of strife. And so I just got bold and told him, you know, I wasn't aware of one bit of strife in this body until you came into it. And I said, yes, there's strife in this body, and you have occasioned it. I said, man, you have criticized everybody. He criticized Jamie because she had hand cream that had lanolin in it. And he says, you're supposed to be faith people. I thought you believed in healing and you're using lanolin. That's medicine. And he began to criticize us and criticized our stand. He got on our case because we ate our uh, potatoes and peeled them. He says, the peel's the best part of it. You're defying God's creation and got on our case for not eating the potato peels. He got on just for using soap. Says, God didn't make you to use soap. Soap's not natural. And I wanted to tell him, boy, you could sure use a little bit of it. He didn't take baths very often at all. But anyway, he just would go around sowing discord all the time. So I told him, I said, you're the problem. I said, you ought to start loving your brother instead of criticizing him. And to my amazement, he humbled himself. And instead of rebelling, he, he broke down and he began to say, how do you love? And I looked at him and thought, you know, uh, what's the matter with you? You know, anybody knows how to love. But he got to relating to me that he was raised in reformatories. He never had a, He never met his family. He was raised in foster homes and reformatories. By the time he was 13 years old, he had been indicted three times by the California grand jury. He was a robber by the time he was eight years old, etc. And he had grown up in so much hate that he had never seen it. He says, if you were telling me to act healed when I feel sick, he says, I can do that by faith because I felt healed before. But he says, I've never felt loved. And he said, I don't know how to do it. And it just took me back because I had I wasn't aware that there were people actually like that. And so the Lord gave me a word and I just said, go look at Jesus. God is love. Look at Jesus. And the way Jesus treated people, the way He treated the woman taken in the act of adultery, that's the way you're supposed to treat people. The way He forgave them and didn't impute their sins unto them, that's the way you're supposed to do. Some of us have moved so far away from God's standards that many of us really don't know what the proper reference point is. We don't actually know what is the true Christian family. What's it supposed to be like? And we need to go back just simply to the Word of God and look at Jesus and see how Jesus would treat your mate. What would Jesus do? Do you think Jesus would say some of the things to your mate that you've said to him? Do you think Jesus would respond to him? Do you think Jesus would ignore him? Do you think the priorities in Jesus' life would be the same as your priorities if he was married to your mate? And you need to go back and just start analyzing those things and seeing what would Jesus do? And whatever you can see Jesus doing, that's what you're supposed to do. That is love. And you can choose to be that way. You can die out to your own selfish desires. And again, I reinstate, there is nothing within us that makes us be selfish like this. It's the simple fact that that old nature inside of us was totally self-centered 
It was taught by the devil to exalt self, do whatever it took for self to feel good. We were trained that way. And now the old man is gone and all that's left is that unrenewed mind. You can change your thinking to a place where it's actually easier for you to operate in God's kind of love than it is to operate in selfishness. Amen? Well, i got a lot of amens on that one. Most people think, boy, you got your head in the bucket. You and Jamie haven't had the problems Rich and Tina have. And yet Rich and Tina would be able to tell you the same thing. You can renew yourself to the place to where it is easier to operate in love than it is to operate in strife. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, that strong meat belongs to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Did you know you can even get your senses to where they begin to start working with you and for you instead of against you? You can renew them. I've reached a place, honestly, and I'm not perfect in this, but I've reached a place where it's easier for me to walk in love, mercy, and forgiveness than it is to get into strife and to get into pouting and depression and those kind of things. Honestly, I do not even have that tendency anymore because I've seen the benefit of the Word of God in my life. And it's made it so that it's easier to walk in love and forgiveness and think about the other person instead of just thinking about self. You can renew yourself. You can choose to do that. I wish I could tell you you could come up here and I'll lay hands on everybody and you can receive it. It doesn't come that way. It comes through denying yourself and it comes through dying to yourself and saying, God, I choose you. And it comes through a lot of discouragement because you'll make this decision during this marriage seminar and go home and fail and think, man, did I blow the whole thing? And you'll have to go back and renew what we've talked about and say, no, get up and start over again. It's a growth process. A lot of us have gotten sloppy and we want somebody to lay hands on us and give us maturity. But it doesn't come that way. You're going to have to grow. You're going to have to mature. Some of you are going to have to go back to your one-year-old childhood and start dealing with some of the emotions that never got dealt with and start saying that I am not the only person in this marriage. There's another real human being over there created in the likeness of God that's got hurts and pains and I'm going to have to start thinking about them and trying to minister to them. Because I can't prosper in this marriage if they don't prosper. And you're going to have to start thinking about somebody besides yourself. And you know, if you'll do that, you'll be surprised what will happen. You'll be surprised how much, you, how much your mate changes when you get your act together. And I'm not talking about really your mate changes. I'm talking about how much your perception changes. So much of the strife that we have is not actual strife at all. It's all inflated, ego-type related things that if we weren't so alive to ourselves and so self-centered, there wouldn't even be a problem. Amen? Isn't this what you all came to marriage seminar to hear? Really, you came to get your mate straightened out, didn't you? Boy, God, minister to my mate. If you don't get her straightened out, something's going to happen. Or him straightened out. Boy, I hope you're getting the message. God wants you to get your act together. And if you get your act together, you know, your mate may do a lot better because they won't be fighting as many battles. And so it'll be a blessing to you. Praise God. Pride, only by pride comes contention. That's a powerful truth. And I want to encourage you, this is not the kind of thing you hear one time and say, man, I believe that. I, I'm free from that from now on. <laughs> Recognizing the truth is just the beginning of the battle. And I encourage you, I've got a tape on strife that will go into much more detail than what I was able to, bring in a lot of other scriptures that will support this, and you need to make that teaching one of your foundational teachings because I promise you, you'll have opportunity to act on what I've talked about today every day of your life. And so I encourage you to really get that in your heart. Before we break today, I'm early. i got ten minutes. Amen. i really got all the time we need. But I want to do this. I want to ask you... You know, this will give an explanation to why I'm asking people to outwardly respond to what's ministered. Because it's very easy to have God speak to you and yet, through pride, never put it into action. Never act on it in any way, form, or fashion. When you humble yourself in front of people by confessing that I'm wrong, did you know that dealing with that pride, the very act of responding openly, is one of the most important things that can happen because you're dealing with that pride, and when pride is dealt with self-centeredness, it seems like everything else begins to crumble around about you. When you can humble yourself before God, that is a tremendous victory on the road to success. That's the reason that the Bible says, pray one for another and confess your faults one to another. 
Not so that you can have some gossip to go share with somebody. Man, did you hear what he has been doing? But rather, it's for the purpose of humbling yourself. Boy, when you begin to start confessing these things, it just does something to you. If you determine, well, I'm not going to treat this person that way again. You know, a, a way to ensure that you won't is to make a commitment that every time I speak evil of somebody in any way, form, or fashion, I'm going to go repent and tell them what I've done. And boy, when that... <laughs> That'll get you serious in a hurry. <laughs> it's one thing to say, well, Father, forgive me, and never get it out in the open. But if every time you do something, it's going to be brought out in the open, you'll find out you've got a real motivation not to sin. Because that humbleness, admitting your faults one to another, is something that we all just hate to do. So anyway, I would like to give you an opportunity to respond to what was said today. And if God has zero in on your problem today, which I know all of us have this problem to some degree or another. God's already dealt with me. My wife was delivered of a demonic temper before we got married. If you've already been dealt with, and if this is just simply an encouragement along the way and a realignment of your sights, then that's fine. But if today you have never responded to this, you've never really recognized the problem. Maybe you've been blaming it on somebody else, or this is the way I was brought up, or this is whatever. I'd like to give you an opportunity today to humble yourself and say, Brother, the buck stops here. The reason for strife in my life is not somebody else. It's not circumstances. It's the fact that I've been self-centered. I'm alive unto myself and I have never really committed myself to God, humbled myself and broken that self-will in me. And if that's you, I want to give you an opportunity right where you are just to stand up, to admit it, confess it, and then we're going to pray a prayer and receive cleansing of that and start on the road to healing. Amen? So if that's you, I'd like you to stand where you are and just admit that before God and let God cleanse you of it. If you've already dealt with it, and I mean you've consciously confronted the thing, you don't need to stand up and go through it again. Just stand and encourage yourself to keep on and increase the effort. But if this is you today, you need to deal with this. You need to deal with that self-centeredness. And I don't want anybody standing up after we bow our heads and begin to pray. I want you to stand up now while people are looking. Amen? <laughs> Humble yourself. If you're going to stand up, do it now. Nobody stands up once we start praying. Anybody else? There may be somebody else that says, Well, brother, I admit that what you're saying is true. But I'm just not sure that I could really, if I stood up, if it would really make a difference. I'm not sure that I'm really ready to turn on myself yet. I acknowledge it, but I, I'm not really to that place yet. But I want to be. If you recognize the problem and want to be free of it today, you can stand and receive prayer. Even if you aren't sure you're to that place. Anybody else? Father, in the name of Jesus, we just put ourselves in agreement. And Father, these people have humbled themselves before You. Father, we have openly confessed that we are just self-centered, that we're prideful, Father, that we never were trained properly. We've been just operating in nothing but self-centeredness. Father, we confess it as sin and we forsake it and ask You to forgive us of this sin in the mighty name of Jesus. And Father, I'm confident, I believe with all of my heart that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. That these sins of self-centeredness, self-seeking, Father, are put under the blood of Jesus and that they're no more remembered that these people are free and clean of it in the mighty name of Jesus. Father, we praise You for it. And Father, we ask You now that even though we've made that decision, we know that we've not only got to make the decision, but now we've got to retrain ourselves. We've got to renew ourselves. Renew our mind. Father, I ask You to bring this commitment that these people have made back to their remembrance. Father, help them to remember the things that the Holy Spirit has spoken to them today so that they can have this same uh, conviction that has come to them today. Father, that it will come to them every time they begin to violate it and get back into self-centeredness. That, Father, once again You'll convict them and reprove and bring us back to that place of repentance and turning from self. Father, we welcome You to do that. We commit these lives to You. Father, we are denying self. We humbled ourselves. We went against our own self-will today and admitted that we're sinners and that we, Father, have sinned, fallen short, that we need help. And Father, we've committed ourselves to You to change us. And we stand on Your promise in Timothy that You are faithful and just to keep that which we have committed unto You against that day. Father, I believe that You're going to keep these people. 
That, Father, You'll keep them in this commitment. That You'll remind them. And, Father, we praise You. We praise You, Father. Some of you now need to just operate in forgiveness right now. You need to choose to forgive. You still may not feel like forgiving, but you just need to make a conscious choice right now and forgive all of the wrongs that have been done. Just wipe the entire slate clean. You need to forgive. There's some of you that need to ask your mate to forgive you. Don't tell your mate what they need to ask forgiveness for. You just, yourself, ask and receive that forgiveness for yourself, that cleansing before the Lord. Praise You, Father. Father, we receive that. And I believe, Father, as a result of today, that we'll all be more submitted to You. And Father, we'll have the good sense that a horse would have to submit ourselves to somebody who's gained mastery over us. And Father, we'd humble ourselves willingly without having to go through traumatic experiences. And Father, we would just of our own free will humble ourselves and come under Your yoke, under Your obedience, Father. We ask You for that. And we receive it. And Father, we believe that we're free. We believe that this is a beginning of changed lives, changed marriages today because of Your Word. And Father, we thank You and receive that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Well, we'll be back here. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.